Before we begin, just to note that this podcast is about sexual assault and contains some descriptions and comments that may not be suitable for everyone. We'd ask that you consider where and whom you happen to be with when listening to this episode. Thank you for both your good judgment and situational awareness. Here's the pod. It made me feel that I wasn't important. And it made me feel like that he was in the right and I was wrong. Them letting him take the Stanley Cup to a high school with kids after they knew what had happened. There's no words to describe it. That is former NHL player Kyle Beach talking about the sexual assault he suffered at the hands of a coach while playing with the Chicago Blackhawks in 2010. I know I reported every single detail to an individual at the NHLPA and nothing happened. The NHL denied an investigation. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to touch it. At the time, the Blackhawks were in the middle of a Stanley Cup run. And now we know that the management and coaching staff decided it was more important to keep the players and fans focused on the playoffs than address the abuse that was happening within their ranks. I had had my career threatened. It made me feel like nothing. It made me feel like I didn't exist. The Blackhawks didn't do anything, except perhaps let the coach resign quietly. That same coach later went on to sexually assault other players, including a minor, an offense for which he served nine months in jail. The coaches, management, and according to Kyle, many of his Blackhawk teammates all turned a blind eye to the abuse he faced. And they continued to turn a blind eye for 11 years until he filed a lawsuit against the team in May of 2021. Now, the first question that comes to mind is why? If they couldn't prevent the assault from happening, why couldn't the Blackhawks prevent Kyle from suffering any more than he already had? Why would they let a sexual predator go on to commit more assaults, including one against a minor? Some might say, well, that was 2010, and we weren't nearly as attuned to sexual harassment in the workplace as we are today. Others might say, well, it's the NHL. 700 players, all of them male in a work environment where everyone is judged on their ability to be aggressive, mentally and physically tough, and as far away from feminine as possible. Charles just using his head as target practice. Dr. Sarah Kaplan, a professor of gender and economy at the Rotman School of Management, as well as a future guest on this podcast, probably put it best. Men are in a straitjacket in terms of what counts as a good worker, what counts as masculinity. But here's the thing, straight jacket or not, there's no complex ethical quagmire here. A coach committed a criminal act against a player under his influence, and everyone around it chose to cover it up. And although we've heard a lot about the punishment that has been meted out, we haven't heard quite as much about what the NHL plans to do to ensure it never happens again. Thanks in part to Me Too, people in the workplace can now expect to see issues of sexual harassment taken more seriously. So why is it then that male professional athletes seem to be behind the curve when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace? That is just one of several questions we put to Paul Milia, president and CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport. He joins us today at The Nexus. 
watching Kyle Beach's heartbreaking interview got me thinking that is a workplace harassment issue. Yep. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today was I'd love to hear from you what stands in the way of creating that healthier kind of culture around talking openly about harassment and having it addressed within professional sports. Not a simple answer that I can give to that. One of the things that stands in the way is the existing culture that has been created over many years. They're in the entertainment business. They want to build an audience. They want to make money. They don't want bad news associated with their sport. That self-interest of wanting to build that business by increasing viewers stand in the way sometimes of doing the right thing when it comes to harassment issues. There needs to be education in that industry so they understand exactly what it means to psychologically mistreat someone and harm someone, what the role of power relationships has. And then there needs to be agreement within the company that they're going to operate their business according to the set of values that would prevent all forms of maltreatment. And that's the culture change ultimately you're after in any business. And that culture change takes a long time. If we think of the the television series Mad Men and the depiction of the office environment in the late 50s and 60s, that's a culture that has changed slowly, all too slowly perhaps. But the Me Too movement, of course, has really helped to accelerate change around those issues in businesses as well. You started your answer talking about how profit incentive serves to maybe act as a break on really developing and advancing and nurturing this kind of culture transformation. How much of that has to do with what I'm going to call gender identity? You look across these four pro leagues that are in some ways very hyper-masculine. I'm curious to know if that serves as a blocker in terms of getting people to willingly and thoughtfully sort of accept change within their culture. Well, I think it could. I don't have evidence to point to, but as you've rightly pointed out, if we look at the NHL, we might be hard-pressed to find a female in a role of power in any of the teams or in the NHL office or in the NHLPA. That gender bias and perspective and in sport and in contact sports in particular, that hyper-masculinity is celebrated and revered. Not just in hockey, but in those male team sports. What's said in the locker room stays in the locker room culture that exists. And from a corporate governance and a transparency perspective, it's not that long ago that it was just a bunch of older men in a room smoking cigars making decisions about their league and their teams and the owners controlled everything. When you look at trying to change a culture and trying to look at inclusion and diversity in any corporate culture, it's going to start with the education. It's going to start with trying to help people understand sort of the human condition. We've come to understand that the human condition expresses itself in a variety of ways, sexual orientation, gender identity. And so all of those things are really important to create more understanding so you can create a more diverse and inclusive work environment. When we 
support our clients with culture transformation around these tough subjects. They have all of the mechanisms in place. They have the resources. They have the reporting structure. And they need the transformation because people aren't using them. In many cases, it's like they're afraid their careers will suffer as a consequence. How do we pull that fear out of it? A fear of damaging what they have if they come forward. In the case of sport, professional sport and harassment and abuse issues, I think that the league needs to have an independent body that players can confidentially report incidents of harassment to and know that the system that they're reporting into is going to ensure that there are no negative effects on the athlete and the athlete's career because of the transparency that would surround pursuing the complaint. But at the same time, you do need leadership within the teams and within the league. In the case of the NHL, you need it from the commissioner through the owners to the league executives of the various teams, talking about it and reassuring their players that that's the kind of environment that they are creating and that they do support and that they encourage the athletes to use the system through that independent body. It starts with defining what those behaviors are in a code. It can't be platitudes. The Universal Code of Conduct Preventing Maltreatment in Sport, we developed that using experts in child development, human development, that understand the impact of sexual, physical, psychological abuse on individuals. And the definitions of those are based on expert advice. You raise the subject of sexual orientation and you think about the four major pro sports leagues, 4,000 active players, perhaps, say, 1,000 coaching staff, two active players who have come out, Carl Nassib and Luke Prokop. And I can't help but think that there is more there that we're not hearing about. Is there data to support that intuition? One would expect that in those leagues across such a large population, you would have certainly more than two gay athletes. But I think that speaks to the culture and it speaks to how safe those athletes would feel making public their sexual orientation. And even in the Kyle Beach case, he has mentioned that he was subject to homophobic harassment. Some of those stereotypes, homophobic and other points of view exist. And that's part of the culture that needs to shift and change. If we take the Kyle Beach story and look at where he went, he went to the places he was supposed to report this kind of incident to. And uh, he understood it was taken to senior management in the, on the team. He took it to his union, the NHLPA. So he did all the things that the processes in that system allowed and encouraged him to do and he saw it dismissed. And so that just, again, speaks to the self-interest that we're operating on the team at the time. And that's why you need the independent body for the players in a sport or the employees in an organization to be able to go to report safely and confidently against a code that everyone has signed on to, been educated around and understands they're subject to. And they have to understand that there are consequences if they violate this code and that these consequences include could be loss of your job or whatever the appropriate proportionate sanction might be for whatever the violation of the code would be. 
together with the other education around the values that we're going to conduct ourselves by in our workplace with respect to safety and respect and fairness and transparency. These things together over time will, I believe, help to shift the culture. You're not expecting change overnight, obviously. No, it is a very slow process because this is anecdotal when I use this example. There would be coaching methods in hockey that have existed and they are based on punishment. And we have come to learn, first of all, that certain forms of punishment, psychological or physical, can be harmful in the short and in the long term to an individual. We also know that punishment's the least effective way to change behavior anyway. But nevertheless, the, there are long-standing coaching practices that have been passed on over the generations. And so it's very difficult to be able to take some of those and have coaches accept that, no, that's not acceptable because it's like, well, that's the way I was coached and it didn't hurt me and all kinds of rationalizations. So that's what you're up against when you're trying to change a culture. You're up against the beliefs and the experiences of individuals as opposed to facts and evidence. How optimistic are you that professional sports is prepared to change their culture around maltreatment? I would say based on what I've seen when Kaepernick took a knee and was essentially blackballed from the NFL, and then we had the unfortunate death of George Floyd in the wake of that, we saw those professional sports really pivot to making it okay for their athletes to speak out about social justice issues. I was surprised at the speed with which they changed their position on that, and I was encouraged. But if you think of the Olympics and the Paralympics, they're still restricting athletes who go to the Olympic and Paralympic Games from speaking out on social justice issues. So then I get pessimistic when I see that kind of approach with that issue. The way forward is not a mystery. If you really want to address the issue, the way forward is very clear. You engage an independent organization to administer a code that everyone agrees to, and you have the processes and the education in place so that victims can come to this body, report confidentially, and know that a process will be followed that's transparent and fair. I'm not hearing any talk of following the way forward, which would be the most effective way to address this issue. Paul, I want to thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. This has been illuminating. Thanks very much, and good luck with this important work. Now, whether you're a professional sports league or an ordinary business, cultural transformation is hard. And if you're serious about doing it, you're probably going to need some help. That's what we do at Nexus. We help clients change their cultures from within. And if you want the same thing for your organization, then we invite you to reach out. You can find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and Mertz Jaffer, with editing and sound design by Alexa Paveo and Justin Moy. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening.